All right, kids, those who are pre-K through first grade, if you're ready to head toward Elevate, toward your children's church time, run to the spotlight, run toward Miss Courtney, actually walk, walk quickly, head toward Miss Courtney. Um, if you are a guest of ours this morning and you have a pre-K through first grader and they would like to go to a children's church time, if this is their first time, if you could go with them. That helps our volunteers out a lot over that direction, so if you can go with them. Hey, if you would, open your Bible to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to start in verse 24. Matthew chapter 13, we're going to start in verse 24. We're continuing to work through a chapter where Jesus is telling these parables to address some of the things that the people are asking about, or things that the people are facing, questions about the kingdom of God. What does it look like for Jesus to come? What does it look like for the kingdom of God to come in power? And so Jesus is teaching these parables to address some of these questions. This morning, I've asked my wife Amanda to read through this set of verses from 24 to 43. We need to hear these verses, and then what I'm going to try to do after these verses is to help us feel the impact of them, the purpose for why they were given, how they impact our lives today. But if you could right now, engage with your heart, engage with your mind. We need to hear these verses to then turn around and say, okay, what's the point? What's the impact of that? Let's read scripture together right now. Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the weeds and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat among them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Verse 31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants, and it becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Verse 34. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what, the prophet, oh, what was spoken by the prophet, I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds, and he went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world, and the good seed is the, and the good seed seeds are the sons of the kingdom, and the weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is in the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. And just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of, men, the Son of Man will send his angels, 
and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteousness, the righteous will shine on the sun and the kingdom of the father. And he who has ears, let him hear. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for today and a chance to be able to come and to learn of your word, Father, to be grown and to be shaped. Father, we ask that now you would help our hearts and our ears to be open. God, we pray for your word to not return void this morning, but God, that it would accomplish its work inside each of the hearts in this room today. Lord, would you help us to be encouraged, to be challenged, to be motivated, and to leave this place, Father, desiring to go and to share your truth with those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So after following Jesus for several months, my friends started to ask me some difficult questions. You see, I had stood in line behind Jesus at his baptism. And then I sat on the side of the mountain while he preached. And then after that, I helped to carry one of my paralyzed friends to Jesus on a mat. And I watched Jesus heal my friend. And then I watched Jesus pronounce my, sin, my, my friend's sins forgiven. I saw Jesus argue with the religious leaders. I saw him eat with tax collectors. And then he even sent us out to be part of his kingdom, to go out and to heal people and to drive out demons and to proclaim the truth. But there was only one problem. The world didn't seem to be that much different. And my friends loved to question me about this. So my friends would say, if the kingdom of God has come through Jesus, why are the Romans still in power? And if the kingdom of God has come through Jesus, sure, your paralyzed friend was healed, but why do people still get sick and die? And if the kingdom of God has come through Jesus, why do evil people still seem to prosper while the righteous suffer? And I had to admit, these were hard questions to answer. Because even though the power of Jesus seemed so great, the kingdom did not appear very impressive. Jesus did great things, he spoke with great authority. But he worked so slowly. And on top of that, even as people responded to Jesus, not a lot responded. And if this was the kingdom that God had promised, I had to admit it was pretty small, it was pretty slow, and it was pretty surprising. But it was like Jesus knew we were asking these questions. Because then he began to speak to us in parables. So if the kingdom of God has come, why do people not receive Jesus? Why do they still reject him? So Jesus turned around and he told us a story about a farmer who went out and sowed seed. Same farmer, same seed, but in three out of four cases, the people did not respond fruitfully to Jesus. Instead, 
There was only one soil that was good and allowed the plants to come up and to produce fruit and grain. And so that made sense. We understood that. But what about this other question? So if the kingdom of God has really come in power through Jesus, why does evil still exist in the world? If Jesus is so powerful, if he is God with us, if he has brought the kingdom to earth, why all this evil? Why has he not just kicked it all out? Well, Jesus began to tell us a story. He told us about another farmer who went out and sowed seed, and the grain started to come up. But there was a problem. An enemy came into his field and sowed bad seed, sowed weeds into the field. Now, you guys have crabgrass. We had something called zunia. So this type of weed that was sown into a field, this type of weed that the enemy brought, it, it gave us problems for two reasons. The first was, in the initial stages of growth, this type of weed looked exactly like a good plant, looked exactly like the wheat. And who hasn't made the mistake of accidentally going to your wife's garden and pulling up a plant that you thought was a weed but accidentally happened to be a good plant? Who hasn't made that mistake? Um, so this zunia, when it was coming up, it looked just like the good wheat. Here's the second problem. This type of weed, when it grew, its roots would entangle with the wheat. So if you attempted to pull up the weed, the root system would cause you to also pull up the wheat. And so in Jesus' story, he said, don't worry about it. It's not your job to pull up the weeds. God will take care of that at the end of the times. He is the one who will make the harvest happen. It's not your job to do that. And then Jesus told us a couple of other parables. He told us about the mustard seed. Now, in my time, the mustard seed was considered to be the smallest of all seeds. It's obviously not, but we called it that, and writers in the ancient world called it that, and so it was the smallest of all seeds, except when it grew, it could grow into a bush that was 8 to 10 feet in height. People even called it a tree. It was so big that birds could come and live in this bush that started from this small seed. And then on top of that, Jesus told us a parable about how bread was made. How you take a little bit of yeast, a little bit of leaven, and you hide it inside the dough, and then before you know it, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and finally brings the full effect of being able to feed people around you. And that's when it clicked. That's when it clicked. Jesus had told us these three parables to teach us this lesson, that things are not always as they appear from a human perspective. The weeds, the mustard seed, the leaven, God was at work in ways that we were not able to see. And the call of these parables was whether or not we would trust him. Even when it looked like with our eyes that the kingdom had not come in power, the question was, did we really believe that God was at work in slow, out of the way, behind the scenes, surprising ways. That's the reason Jesus taught us in parables like this. Okay, so let me break out for a second from that. Here's the question. 
How do you take these parables? How do you take these lessons in a 21st century way and begin to make sense of them in a way that they impact our lives and they impact our church? Here's what I want to do up front for us. I want to lay down a couple of phrases that are so helpful for reading the New Testament and definitely helpful for making sense of these parables. So these are a couple of kingdom connection phrases that I hope you'll hold on to because they'll help you read the New Testament and they'll help you make sense of how the kingdom of God works in the world. The first phrase is this, already, not yet. Already, not yet. Now, some people memorize this phrase as now, not yet. Just pick one, does not matter. I learned it as already, not yet. Some people like it better as now, not yet. Just pick one and we're talking about the same thing. Here's what I mean. With the kingdom of Jesus, already Jesus has come in power. Already Jesus has come in victory. He has brought victory and power in the kingdom of God. Not yet have we seen everything that that is going to mean. In other words, we live in a world where people still die. We live in a world where evil still happens. We live in a, er, a world where political power can still be used for evil means. We live in a world that is not perfect, but we live in a world where the kingdom of God has already come in power. And so what Jesus is doing in these parables is he is teaching the people, I am already at work. You can trust me. With confidence, you can know that the power of God has come to the world and you can know that not yet have you seen everything that that's going to mean. What does that mean in our lives? In our lives, it means that you are going to have family members and friends who love and worship Jesus, who are going to face immense heartache, terrible sickness, terrible relationship situations in this world, and it is understandable in those situations why we would ask, is this the kingdom of God? Is this what it looks like for God to come in power for my family, for my friends to face what they're facing right now? Is this what that looks like? And the answer from Jesus is already you can have confidence in my victory, in my hope, in my power. But remember, you have not yet seen all that that's going to mean in eternity. It's a phrase that's meant to bring this incredible encouragement, this incredible peace, but it's also a warning that reminds us that what we see now is not the end of the story. With that, there's a second phrase, and we're going to talk about this this morning. It's the phrase of patient but not passive. In the kingdom of God, we have to be patient with how God wants to work among us. But being patient doesn't mean that you sit to the side and do nothing, that you sit to the side and be passive. There is a way that we live in the kingdom of God being patient, saying, God, I know you're at work, and at the same time, that faith drives us to action. We have a future hope. If you have trusted in Jesus for salvation, there is a future hope that we have not yet seen everything that he is going to do for all of eternity. We have a future hope, but it's a future hope that impacts the way we live today. It's a living hope. If I have future hope, it drives the way that I operate today when the world is not working the way I think it should work. So what? 
Where do we take this? How do we make sense of this? Here's the first call this morning. The first call is to trust God. To trust God's judgment, to trust God's salvation, to trust God's timeline and his plans. I know you've heard it said this way, but let me say it again to make sure you get the point. The point is, he's God, I'm not. (laughs) He's God, you're not. We trust him. We trust that his judgment is righteous. We trust that his salvation is sure. We trust that his timing and plans are good and right, which is so nice to say on Sunday morning, gathered together in a church building, but it is really, really hard to live out on a consistent basis. Do I trust that God is in control? Do I trust that God is good and holy and powerful? Do I trust that God is at work in the world and at work in my life? Do I trust those things? And then part of the question is, okay, what does it look like to do this? What does it look like to trust God? Let me point you to a couple of verses here in this parable. Look at the end of that explanation that Jesus gives, starting in about verse 39. We want to think about, okay, I want to trust God. I'm here this morning because I believe that God's powerful. I believe that God's word is true. I want to trust God. What what does that look like? Where's that trust leading me? Look at the middle of verse 39. So in giving the explanation for this parable, Jesus says that the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So he's speaking about something to come at the end of the age. When your Bible says the end of the age or this present age, it's speaking about this in-between, already not yet time that we live in when we're waiting for Jesus' return to make all things right. So when this time is finished, when this age is finished, that reapers will be the angels. Verse 40, verse 40, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. There at the end of verse 41 in your Bible, if you look at your phone or you get the Bible up in front of you, at the end of verse 41, there's two phrases there. All causes of sin is a word that has to do with tripping up someone or something. It's something that causes you to stumble. All causes of sin there in that verse is a phrase, surprisingly, that Jesus even uses for Peter. After Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah in Matthew chapter 16, he turns around and doesn't like the fact that Jesus is going to have to suffer. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are becoming a hindrance, a stumbling block. This phrase is even later used in connection to to Peter there. So there's this phrase of being a a stumbling block. It's, It's also a phrase that's used in Matthew chapter 18 for causing little ones, young children, to stumble in coming to Jesus or to trip them up or to tempt someone who is weak. It's, it's that type of idea that, that you're missing the point of what it looks like to guide people to follow Jesus. And so all of that will be removed. All impurity, all temptation will be removed. And then it also says at the end of 41, it says all lawbreakers. This is a phrase that Jesus has already used in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus often connects lawbreaker 
Surprisingly, he connects lawbreaker with hypocrisy. Someone who looks religious on the outside, but actually they don't understand what it means to truly follow the will of God. So it looks like I'm keeping the law, but in reality, I don't understand what it means to trust and obey God. Jesus says that all of this will be taken out of the way at the end of time. Verse 42, really hard verse. Difficult language in verse 42. And throw them into the fiery furnace. What's the imagery there? Well, remember it's a parable about weeds. When these weeds are gathered up, they're not good for anything except to be thrown into that furnace to face that judgment. In that place, middle of 42, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, that's a phrase when it shows up in in the New Testament, when we see weeping and gnashing of teeth, weeping and gnashing of teeth, this is a place where knowing the Old Testament connection can really help you understand why that type of language, why would Jesus use language like that? Our background is Psalm 112, verse 10. When you go back and you read through Psalm 112, it is a psalm about God bringing justice to the world, God reaching out to the poor, God using his people to promote justice in the world, And those who are evil, those who are prideful, those who are sinful, they do not like this plan of God that he is bringing hope and justice to the weak, that he is using his people to do good in the world. And so in Psalm 112 verse 10, it says that they gnash their teeth, that they are weeping against the plan of God. So in your Bible, when you see this phrase for eternal judgment about weeping and gnashing of teeth, it's not a phrase primarily about pain. It's, it's not about being burned up. It is a phrase about hating the justice and the holiness of God. Hostility and anger toward God. So hear me out on something. This is such an important point. Hostility and anger and hatred toward God's holiness and righteousness in this life will not automatically go away after death, will not automatically go away for those people at the end of the age. There will continue to be a hostility and an anger and a hatred toward the righteousness and holiness and goodness of God. When we trust God's judgment, we are trusting that he is holy and that he will do what is right And the flip side of that is that we trust that his salvation is glorious. That his salvation is good and secure. If you are here this morning and you are unsure of your eternity, if you are unsure what would happen to you after death, can I tell you that God is good and he is righteous And he is holy. And we will all stand before him. But we do not have to stand before him based on our own merit (laughs) and our own actions. Thank God we don't have to do that. Your hope this morning, if you are unsure about your eternity, if you are unsure about your salvation, your hope is not found in the fact that you're here this morning. It's not found in the fact that you grew up in a religious home. Your hope is found in Jesus that he has done for you 
what you could never do for yourself, that he has died on the cross for your sins and that he rose again to destroy the fear and the power of death. I know we don't talk about eternity nearly as much as we should, but I need you to hear the weight of that this morning because of the way that this parable works. It reminds us that we must trust God. He is our only hope for this life and he is our only hope for eternity. And if you do not know that hope, if you do not know the power of his salvation, the most important thing you can do this morning is to trust in him. To trust in what Jesus has done for you. To call out to him and say, Lord, I need you to save me. You are my only hope. That's what this parable is driven at, is how will we respond to trusting God and to trusting the power of his kingdom? Now, secondly, if you have done that, if you know what it is to be a part of the kingdom of God, here's the second call of this parable. It's to be patient. Lord knows we struggle with this. <laughs> um, you guys are familiar with the old church joke of you never pray for patience, right? Um, you can pray for all kinds of things, but the moment you pray for patience, well, you ask for that, whatever you got. Um, that was kid number three you weren't counting on is when you prayed for patience. So uh, the, um, when you pray for patience, you never know what, how the Lord's gonna respond to that. The call in the kingdom is to be patient. Now, what do, what do you mean by be, be patient here? It comes out in these parables in a couple of different ways. Here's the first way. Remember back in this, in this parable that Jesus gave? If you go back to verse 28 in Matthew 13, look back in, 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 in verse 28. I want you to see how this element of, of patience works itself in here. Actually, back up to verse 27. Let's start in verse 27 if you're looking there in your phone or Bible. Verse 27, it says that when these weeds appeared, the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. Then look at what happens in the middle of verse 28. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? In other words, hey, we'll, we'll take care of that. Like, we have ways to solve that problem. Verse 29, he says, No, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Remember how these plants worked, how those root systems would go in and uh, entangle themselves? If you tried to pull up one, you would pull it up all. Here's where patience works itself out one way in the kingdom. It is ultimately not up to us about what it looks like for another person to be saved. So let me say this carefully so I don't give across the wrong idea. In the church, we are certainly called to make discernments to help people understand what it means to be saved. But you are not God and neither am I. And sometimes we do not see fully how God is at work in a person's life. So don't give up praying for people in your life. There are people in your life that you have determined there is no way that that person will ever trust in God for salvation. You are not God. He is God. Be patient with the work of God. Be patient with how he works in other people. I can think back, and I say this carefully because these are people I love and care for and, and, and 
still count myself uh, as friends to them. But I can look back at my youth group days and my college days and many people who seem to be tracking with the Lord want nothing to do with him today. Others who wanted nothing to do with the Lord then are absolutely on fire to live for him today. We have to be careful that in our human perspective, our human minds, we don't start playing God about what God is going to do in a person's life. Be patient. Be patient with the work that God wants to do in the lives of the people around you. Be patient with other spiritual growth. Where you are spiritually today, it took you a long time to get here. And you messed up a lot on the journey, and there was a lot of struggle to get to this point. So when you look at someone who doesn't seem to be as far along in their Christian walk, and you find yourself either being frustrated with that person or prideful to that person, remember, it took a long time for you to get to this point. It took a lot of work. God worked hard to get you to this point. You have no idea what God might be doing in that person's life. Be patient with the spiritual growth of the people around you. Also, be patient with the growth of the church. Church growth is something that only God can do. We can manufacture a system in which people show up here, but that is not church growth. Church growth is a work that God does in his way and at his time. Now, he uses us in that for sure, but we need to be patient with the way that God does this work in a church. We want God to work now at our time and our way, and God does not always work in that way. So the call of these parables is just to be patient. Remember that little mustard seed that's planted? It doesn't look like very much of the time, but then it grows up. The yeast that you put in the bread doesn't look like very much of the time, and then it produces this incredible result. Be patient with the work that God wants to do in your life, the work he wants to do in the people around you, and the work that he wants to do in the church. And if I could just give maybe one more practical example of, of how this works works itself out parents i hesitate to say this because i put myself in the same category be patient with the lord's work in your kid's life kids don't always grow spiritually at the same rate and in the same way and at the same time invest the word pray with them speak about the gospel at home let your face show up at home not just when you work, walk inside this particular building you don't know how God's at work in your kids' lives all the time. Be patient with what that looks like. Continue to pray for them. Continue to worship with them. Continue to speak the gospel in your home. But just be patient with how God wants to do that. Now, let me flip that around to the other side. There's be patient, which in our human minds we hear and say, oh good, I won't do anything. <laughs> I'll just sit around and, and, and do nothing and God will take care of everything. That's not how patience works actually in Scripture. We're called to be patient, which means to trust God's power and God's work. We're not called to be passive or pessimistic. I could probably throw some more P words in if I tried really hard, but we stop, we'll stop there. Um, pastoral alliteration, oh, I did another one, P, pastoral. Pastoral alliteration is a dangerous thing because we never know where to stop. Um, it just goes on and on and on and on. So 
We are called to be patient. Hear me out. We must be patient. We are not called to be passive, just to sit to the side. And we are definitely not called to be pessimistic. When God does this type of work in our life, we can be a source of hope and joy and peace and love for the people around us. If you're trying to figure out in your life, how can I share about the kingdom of God with the world around me? How do I do this? How do I share with the people around me? Don't overlook how being a person of hope in a hopeless world, how being a person of good news in a bad news world, how being a person of peace in a chaotic world, how being a person of joy when everyone else seems to have no source of joy, God will use those things in incredible ways to allow you to speak with other people about Jesus. Simply by being patient and being joyful and peaceful and kind, it's an avenue to be able to share Christ with the people around you. Here's the other thing. We talk about don't be passive, don't be pessimistic. Never underestimate the power of slow and steady growth. We are built for hype. (laughs) We want to grow now, and we want to grow fast, and if it doesn't happen now, and it doesn't happen fast, we want nothing to do with it. That's just the way we live in our culture. Give me my food, give it to me fast, end of story. God's kingdom doesn't work that way most of the time. Most of the time, your spiritual growth is going to be so slow, you're not even going to recognize it. Let me tell you something about how spiritual growth often, ha- often happens. If you think of a spiral that gets closer and closer and closer to the center as it goes, that is usually how spiritual growth happens in your life and in a church. It feels like you're going in a circle. Like my life is making no progress. I'm just going in a circle, but before you realize it, you're actually getting closer and closer to the center, but you don't really realize it until you back up and you take a look. In your life, you may feel like I'm just going in circles. I'm just showing up to church. I'm just reading my Bible. I'm just praying. I'm just speaking to my kids about the gospel at home. Oh man, don't underestimate the power of slow and steady growth. It looks terrible on social media. It's impossible to hype. It's not going to be the coolest strategy around, but it is so effective long term. The growth and the power. Remember the parable from last week about how the plant that grew up quickly? What happened to the plant that grew up quickly? It was scorched and it withered away because it was no, there was no root system there. Growth in the kingdom is so often slow and steady, but it will have an exponential impact long term. What's involved here is the idea of the flywheel. Uh, This wheel that it takes a lot of work to get it started, but once it gets started, the momentum builds, the momentum builds, and then there's no way that you can stop it. Oftentimes, God's work in your life and God's work in the church is similar to that. It seems so slow getting started. It seems so slow getting the wheel turning. But before you realize it, that wheel starts to turn and it takes off and there's incredible power. And that's kind of how revival works in a church. So let me speak to you for just a minute. 
very transparently about a work that, that God is doing in my own life and that I pray that God is doing in the life of our church here at Emmaus. So we're hosting these revival services. We're using the word revival on purpose just because it kind of connects with people still in a certain way here, here in our area. But we realize that offering four worship services four nights in a row is not revival, does not bring revival simply by doing that. But it is an important step in the life of our church and even for, for our staff to think about what does it look like for us to pray for revival, to pray for renewal. In my own life, God has been doing this work in my heart where I'm so terrified of what it would look like just to go through the motions day after day, week after week, year after year, and not truly experience his power in my life, and in my family, and in this church. And so praying, God, would you move in my heart? Would you give me a burden for people who don't know you? Would you make me a passionate worshiper? Would you sanctify me and get rid of this junk that in my, in my life that keeps me back from doing what you've called me to do? God, do this work in my life. And I've been praying this and praying this and praying this. And you, you know what I have to show for it? Nothing except standing up here and telling you this is what, except that's not true, is it? No. I don't have anything outwardly to show you. I can't give you quantifiable evidence of this is what this prayer has looked like in my heart, but I do know what it's doing inside me. I do know the way that it's changing my life day after day. And here's what I want to say about Emmaus, and here's what I want to say about our us together as a church. We're not setting any kind of, of growth records. It's okay. We're not setting any kind of growth records. But what I do sense is a growing desire to see the power of God made manifest in our presence. What I do sense is a growing urgency to see people far from God come to know him. What I do sense is a slow and steady growth of here's a baptism, there's a baptism, here's a baptism, there's somebody joining, there's somebody repenting, there's somebody reconciling with their family. And it seems so slow and steady that it doesn't look great on social media and it's not anything that you can hype but it is a sense of, God, you are doing something in us that maybe we can't see right now. But if we continue that slow and steady growth, God, you will do great things with that. You will bring impact from that that goes beyond anything that we could ever manufacture on our own. So what do we have to do? We have to trust you. We have to be patient and we cannot be passive, and we cannot be pessimistic. At this point, the thing that would kill Emmaus right now is if we just sat to the side and said, well, that doesn't matter. We're just going to kick back and relax. We will not be passive, Emmaus. We absolutely will not do that. And we will not be pessimistic. We live in a world that is hopeless in so many ways. We live in a world where people face bad news on a daily basis, and we will be a source of hope. And we will be a source of good news that comes only through Jesus. And why will we do that? We will do that because of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. When you take these parables out of Matthew 13, and you lay them against another verse in the New Testament, you can't do better than 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why is there still evil in the world? Why does it not look like God's power has shown up in all of its might? God's not slow. He knows exactly what he's doing. His timing is perfect. What looks slow to you is actually a call to action for the church to say he desires the salvation of all people and he wants to work through us to see that happen. Thank God for his patience with me. Thank God for his patience with you. And then let that drive you to share the good news of Jesus with the people around you. Would you bow your heads with me? Here's what we're going to do just for, for a, couple of, a couple of minutes. I'd like to guide you through a time of prayer. David's going to play a song in the background, and as you hear the psalm begin to play, you're going you're gonna to recognize the, the psalm about what it is to have the peace and hope of God in our lives to say, it is well with my soul. I'm going to guide us through a time of prayer. And then here in a couple of minutes, we're just going to stand up and sing that chorus together two or three times, and we'll be dismissed after that. But right now, Right now is the chance to take a deep look in your life. God, do I trust you? Am I willing this morning to think about eternity, to realize that this life that we live, it is not forever. We see friends and family around us facing mortality, facing death, and it causes us to take a look at our own life where we placed our hope, what we're living for. If you are here this morning and you are uncertain of what it would mean to stand before a holy and righteous God, I want to call you right now to know that that God is Savior, that He is Lord, that He is King, that He has made a way a salvation for you through Jesus. You don't have to get your life together. You come to him broken and he brings salvation. If that's you right now, right where you are, you can call out to God, say, Lord, save me. I'm so unsure of what it would mean to stand before you. I know that on my own, I have no hope, but my hope is in Jesus right now. You're praying to him for that salvation. We want to be able to come alongside you and pray for you. When we finish here today, just come and tell me about that. Find somebody you know, tell them about that so we can encourage you. Let me ask you right where you are, if there is someone in your life that you have lost patience with their spiritual growth, you have given up praying for them coming to faith in Christ, 
right where you are right now, pray for that person, that person that you think there's no way that they would ever come to faith in Christ, or they're, they've fallen so far from the Lord, I, I can't believe it. Just pray for them. Thank God for his patience in your life and pray for that person. Pray for that family member, that friend. That they would respond to the Lord in his time of patience with them right now. Would you do one more thing as we pray together right now as a church with our head, heads bowed? Would you pray that God would bring a powerful spiritual renewal to your life, to our church, to your pastor's life? It may not look impressive on the outside. It may not be full of hype. It may not win any awards, but would you pray that God would do a deep and powerful work in your life and in our church and in our leadership so that it would bring an eternal impact that goes beyond anything that we could ever imagine. God, we come before you this morning praying that you would do more than we could ever ask or imagine. God, we believe as a church that you are at work right now in ways that go beyond anything our human eyes could ever see. And God, we say that we trust you. And we trust you so much that we refuse to be passive. God, we will proclaim and display Jesus because our hope is in him. That is the only way that we could ever know that it is well with our soul is the only way that we could ever have hope in this life. And so we proclaim that as a church right now, even as we pray together. God, we proclaim that we trust you. And because of Jesus, it is well with our souls.